Emotional health, in fact, health in general, isn't so much about what's wrong with this as it is about what's right, and then walking into what's even better. Now, in our medically driven diagnosis from the Western world, we've been conditioned to look at problems rather than seek solutions, and we've been trained to fix issues rather than walk and hold us. This applies to emotional health too. Now, whenever I speak to a group about emotional wholeness, many people assume that my goal is to convince people they have emotional scars which need healing. That's simply not true. Therefore, my goal is never for people to get a diagnosis or even to take a psych eval. I'm simply honest about my story, as I talked about oh, three weeks ago, because, well, that's my story. It's what I did. My goal is to help people walk in freedom, period. Now, if a diagnosis or even just an evaluation is the path to freedom, so be it. Many times, it's not though. In, in fact, I would say most of the time, simply having the information is enough. Now, all of that said, here's what I wanna do. I wanna to talk to you a little bit about post-traumatic stress, which we introduced in the last conversation. Now, many people think PTSD, that's the short moniker for, for post-traumatic stress disorder. Many people think it's new. Turns out it's not. In fact, it's been around for an incredibly long time. In fact, it's probably been around as long as people have been around. For sure, the actual term, post-traumatic stress disorder, it didn't come into popular usage until after Vietnam. However, historical evidence, it indicates that even warriors in ancient times suffered its effect. I mean, you can go back and trace it uh, to warriors even in biblical times. In fact, though it may be identified by different terminology, we see examples throughout history. For instance, during the Civil War, it was called Soldier's Heart. During World War I and World War II, people often referred to shell shock. During the Korean and Vietnam Wars, you heard about combat fatigue or battle fatigue. You've probably heard those terms before. Each one references the same internal struggle. Now, as it pertains to military service, it's important to note that the effects are not unique to American soldiers. PTSD is experienced among those on both sides of the conflict from warriors from both countries. I'm going to put a graphic to this down in the show notes where you can look and just get an overview. Now again, soldier's heart and shell shock, they're concepts which have been around for decades. I remember hearing each of these terms when I was a kid, generally in reference to an older veteran in our church. The terms were most often used anecdotally, pointing to someone who had trouble adjusting to social norms. Now, thankfully, our perspective on PTSD, it's changed. Uh, there's a woman named Shannon Paulson. She's a clinical social worker. She's featured in this documentary, Honoring the Code. I'll put a link down to that where you can stream it absolutely free from the show notes as well, uh, along with another documentary, Invisible Scars, specifically to deal with uh, veterans or family members of veterans to help them understand post-traumatic stress disorder. Shannon Paulson, clinical so social worker, featured in that Honoring the Code film. She noted that its formal recognition as post-traumatic stress disorder, it did not incur until 1980 when it was entered into the DSM-3. Now the DSM, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. That book provides the criteria, it's the standard that professionals use to diagnose, treat, or prescribe. So several weeks ago when I told you about meeting with a licensed uh, psychologist and psychiatrist to see if I was diagnosable uh, about this time last year 
they used the DSM, he used the DSM-5, which is the newest update uh, as of the time of that. So, so the inclusion of the DSM-3, it put PTSD and it really put the field of traumatology on the map as a mental type thing that people could seek healing with. Uh, now, according to Shannon Paulson, that was the first time really, 1980, that it was ever formally acknowledged and that really lent credibility to the field of emotional health. Now, some people disagree about this. Let me bring this up. Whether or not we should use the word disorder when we refer to PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. A uh, couple points. First, some people feel the word disorder, it carries a stigma that might hinder people from seeking treatment. Uh, second, others point to the fact that psychological diagnoses fall on a spectrum. That's like we discussed earlier, and that you can be greatly affected by something and not, now, now get this, not qualify for a diagnosis. Uh, third, others remind us that we don't label other common human health concerns, broken bones, the common cold, or even cancer. We don't label those as disorders. We simply diagnose them and then we move forward with treatment protocols. Now, I would say right there, we do label a lot of those as dis-ease. Now, generally, people opposing the use of disorder, they prefer substituting the word injury or symptom, or they just omit the word entirely. So you might hear someone say post-traumatic stress injury, or they might say post-traumatic stress symptom, or you might even hear them say post-traumatic stress, and that'd be it. Now, recently I was watching an interview with a Democratic, uh, Democrat presidential candidate who happens to be a veteran. He was asked about the trauma that he experienced in war, and he referred to PTS. Again, when you hear the term post-traumatic stress symptom or post-traumatic stress injury or just PTS or post-traumatic stress, the same soul wounds are being addressed, and it's an important discussion but since PTSD remains the term used for diagnostic purposes in the current DSM-5, that's the identification that I'm going to use when I'm talking. So just maybe that's an important um, item just to consider because, again, I'm, I'm not here to diagnose, treat, or prescribe anyone. I'm just here to open up the conversation and say, again, the goal is not to get diagnosed. The goal is just to say, hey, these are real issues. Let's choose to walk in health. Okay, that said, what does all that, what does PTSD or PTS or PTSS, what, what does post-traumatic stress disorder look like? Now, experts generally agree there are four categories of symptoms that help them recognize and diagnose PTSD properly. And again, you could experience multiple symptoms at the same time. There's four. Number one, hypervigilance. Uh, hypervigilance means the person can't relax, they have difficulty concentrating and sleeping. Uh, everyday sounds such as a car backfiring or fireworks, they may cause anxiousness or they may even elicit a trained response such as duck and roll or take cover. Um, people that are hypervigilant may tend to sit with their back to the wall in public places in order to be aware of the environment before them. And as I say that and looking at the notes, I'm thinking that's exactly what I do when I go out to eat or to the coffee shop, or to the library, or to any other place. Okay, moving on. Number one is hypervigilance. Number two is re-experiencing symptoms. 
so this might come in the form of nightmares or flashbacks where they feel like they're back in the traumatic situation. Uh, certain sounds or triggers uh, may happen uh, with sights. Uh, memories of danger and stress you keep experiencing and re-experiencing over and over the events um, that happen that cause the traumatic stress. Uh, number three, avoidance symptoms. So the person may do whatever they can to avoid anything that reminds them of that trauma. Uh, they may want to avoid riding in a car. If they were in a car accident, they may want to avoid watching certain kinds of movies. They may want to avoid being around certain particular people or certain kinds of people. Uh, they may even avoid talking and even thinking about hurtful memories, or they may get rid of pictures, they may get rid of um, clothing, they may get rid of furniture. They Again, they want to avoid anything related to that past event or events. Number four is negative feelings. Uh, that is, the person may be extremely depressed, they may have angry outbursts, or they just might not be able to control their emotions. They, they may be fearful of others or not able to trust people. Okay, so those four points, again, let me repeat them. Hypervigilance is number one. Re-experiencing symptoms is number two. Avoidance symptoms is number three. Negative feelings is number four. Now, you might listen to those and think those responses seem fairly common. It turns out that they are. Depending on the situation, you might have experienced each of these symptoms before and actually not struggle with PTSD. You know, as I think back through them, I know I've experienced each of these. This right here, it's one of the reasons I advocate walking in health far more than I encourage seeking a diagnosis. Okay, but besides, a diagnosis means nothing if you don't follow through with the intention to live healthy and whole. Now, you've seen this on the physical level. You hear about people who have a heart attack and they effectively do nothing to change their diet or get exercise. You hear about people who have cancer and then they undergo the treatment protocols. They get completely healthy, but they do nothing to change diet or change the routine, even though doctors say that cancer is 90 to 95% environmental, only 5 to 10% genetic. So there, there's a lot here that really depends upon you and I choosing intentionally to walk out in health and wholeness. Okay, that said, the result of those four symptoms, so I just gave you four symptoms, they generally take two opposite approaches with people depending upon the makeup of the person. You've heard these before. Number one is fight. Number two is flight. Okay, so let me explain both of those. Fight. Some people choose to turn and face the direct threat. They may become aggressive. They may launch a retaliatory assault that even against a perceived yet unreal threat. You might have done this yourself. <laughs> you might have experienced this being done to you when somebody pops off you verbally in a way that's disproportional to the actual threat they're experiencing, or they've popped off on you when there is no threat. I've, I've experienced all of that, and, and to be honest, I think I've probably done all of that. Uh, flight, the motto of a person who is in, sorry, fight, the motto of a person in fight might be the best defense is a great offense. That's the mantra of survivors who choose fight. Okay, number two, flight. Other people take flight. That is, they avoid the conflict altogether, protecting themselves by removing themselves from the situations. Okay, 
So some people may choose to fight in some situations though, and here's where it gets tricky, while electing to flight in others. Uh, often it depends on the type of perceived threat as well as whether or not they feel responsible for others who are present. Uh, for instance, I'll give you an example. Now, I might respond to the threat of a carjacker differently if I was alone. Oh, here, take the keys as opposed to if I had my daughters inside the car already with me, I might not let the person in the car. So fight or flight, again, two different ways that people deal with that. Now, let me remind you this about PTSD. A lot of people think PTSD is rare. That's really a misperception of it. It's actually kind of common. What's uncommon is the formal diagnosis. In order to be diagnosed, people must meet specific criteria. Now, I've got this book, and I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes, Claim Your Freedom. It's a book I wrote with the guys from Oily App uh, with some study that we were doing on some essential oils and health protocols, uh, specifically that Young Living Essential Oils, a company, had done when they were really doing a study to try to help veterans that were overcoming PTSD. And so the book, it has maybe 15 to 20 pages in the back about those specific oils, has about 150 to 180 pages that's just about emotional health in the beginning. And in fact, a lot of the information that I'm teaching you is coming from my research and from the text that I put together for that book. So in there, in the chapter 17, I actually include a post-traumatic self-evaluation self-test. I'm going to put that self-test in the show notes right here to where you can get that. Uh, when I was writing the book Warrior Hope for veterans uh, with a with a co-worker, Bob Waldrop, we actually located that test on a VA website, and so that's the inclusion. Now, the version of the test we have, it lists eight criteria. Here, here's the point. It lists eight criteria related to PTSD, eight. At the time I began researching it, Veterans were required to meet all eight criteria in order to receive a formal diagnosis. And now, I would encourage you, even if you're not a veteran, to go read that diagnosis because there's really nothing in that list that is veteran-specific. It just talks about how you're feeling and how you're responding in different situations. And so whether you're a, a stay-at-home dad or whether you're a working mom or whether you're old or young or you're a, a banker or whether you're a, anything, anywhere, like that test will give you some accurate feedback where you'll know what to do next, whether you should seek professional help or whether you should just walk this thing on your own. Okay, so veterans were required to meet all eight criteria in order to receive a formal diagnosis, and a professional had to give them the diagnosis. You can't diagnose yourself. It's just yourself is the one that kind of raises the hand and says, man, I need to approach a professional, as I did, and see if there is a diagnosis. Okay, now in addition to the eight factors, had to meet all eight. So you had to store, you had to score 100% on the test. In addition, three more factors came into play. Here they are, number one, the trauma had to be linked to a specific event which they could recall to a licensed professional. So you had to be able to say, this thing caused it. Number two, at least one of two additional specifications, that's their word, specifications had to be met. That is, the person had to either be uh, depersonalizing the issue, um, something like, this didn't happen to me, as if they're living in a dream world, like this isn't real, or they had to derealize it. None of this is real. So there had to be this 
almost they had enough fortitude to recall the event, but then there had to be enough delusion mixed with it to where they desensitized or depersonalized or derealized it. Number three criteria, at least six months had to pass between the onset of the issue and the date of the diagnosis. So even if the symptoms occurred immediately, time needed to elapse to prove that the issue was now an ongoing soul wound instead of just the result of something that just happened last week, that time, a short amount of time, would heal. Now, in my mind, there are a couple of red flags with those three qualifiers. Uh, here they are. In fact, three red flags. First, many times it's difficult to hitch soul wounds to a specific event. Uh, that is, traumatic feelings are rarely the result of just one event. They're often the result of a series of events. For instance, if a soldier survives multiple deployments and takes gunfire numerous times, it only feels the emotional pain after she slows down enough to catch her breath and assess what happened. How can she necessarily point to the precise moment that birthed the trauma? Uh, or, another example, if a spouse is verbally berated by his wife such that gaslighting and name-calling and psychotic control on a monthly, if not weekly, basis for decades, is it any less real because he can't determine the exact moment it began to feel less like a regular marital spat and more like one-sided, heavy-handed abuse? Because of the nature of life and the changing dynamics of human relationships, it's most situations... Uh, it's mind-bending, if not impossible, to determine which precise instance of trauma is the straw that broke the camel's back. Usually, there are a lot of straws. Okay, second, humans have an uncanny way of whitewashing the past of looking through the rearview mirror with rose-colored lenses. We tend to minimize the hurts we feel because of two facts. Number one, time does heal a lot of wounds, or at least it heals them to some degree, as well as, number two, someone always has it, quote, worse, unquote, than us. Thereby, that causes us to minimize our pain. So, as a result of that, that whole depersonalization and derealization, those are real issues that occur even when people are healthy. And here's the third red flag. Waiting six months from the onset of traumatic injury until a diagnosis is received, on one hand, it's a positive step, but I would say it's short-sighted. It's rarely, I would think, my opinion, a good idea for someone to receive a diagnosis after just a few days. The wounds are too raw to completely assess. At the same time, think about it like this, we clearly don't wait for six months to label physical wounds. When something is amiss, we address it. In large part, that's because, particularly when it comes to physical wounds, the goal is often to get well rather than living in the diagnosis. See the difference? That said, those are lofty criteria to meet in order to receive the formal label of post-traumatic stress. And since there are only eight criteria, you must score perfect on the test in order to receive the diagnosis. And I would think maybe that should be the case. After all, we're looking at a label that somebody will carry with them for quite some time. And it's a moniker that lands on job applications, it lands on school forms, it lands on every health questionnaire you'll ever complete in the future. But let's say that you don't score perfect. For the sake of argument, let's say that you don't want the diagnosis, you don't want the label. That's probably most of us, right? But let's say you emphatically do want to walk in health and wholeness. That's probably most of us too. Are you less affected because you score a seven instead of an eight? 
does that mean you shouldn't address the emotional hurts that caused you that much, but just short of diagnosable internal pain? I have read and I've reread that test dozens of times. I've looked at it as I've listed it to veterans and business partners and friends, and they've shared their stories with me. And I believe that most people who read the test and most people who listen to the podcast and most people who read the book that we wrote about it, I think that most people probably fall somewhere on a five to six. They're not diagnosable for PTSD any more than the average person on the street is diagnosable with cancer. But not having cancer doesn't mean that we don't walk in perfect health physically any more than not having PTSD automatically assumes we're emotionally whole. Do you see that? Even if you don't have a diagnosis for either, there's always room for greater levels of health, especially when we're not afraid of labels and we've embraced the notion of total wholeness as the goal. Again, the goal is not to receive a diagnosis, nor is it necessarily to avoid one. The goal is complete wholeness. And the reality is that, in some sense, precisely because life is both good and simultaneously hard. That is what I labeled part one of that book. Life is good and life is hard. And because of that truth and that tension, most of us have soul wounds. Where do they come from? And how do we identify those? I am going to stop here, pray and sign off, and I'm gonna come back and talk to you about the self-protective self and soul wounds in our next talk. Here's the prayer. May the Lord bless you, may the Lord keep you, may the Lord be gracious to you and shine his incredible face of favor on you. May you see, sense, and feel what you need to see, sense, and feel of the past because it's only by dealing with that past that you can fully move forward. And I'm not saying you should recall everything. I am saying you can trust the Holy Spirit to recall the things that need to be recalled and dealt with. And you can trust that He wants you healed and whole more than you want to be healed and whole because He has an incredible destiny for you that Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, By grace you're saved, and He foreordained great works with the same grace that you would walk in. There's an incredible grace on your life to save you and then to empower you to be a world changer and to bring some gift to the world. And so... If there's something from the past that's hindering that, he's gonna recall that. And if he doesn't recall that, you can trust the Spirit to just empower you to move forward in grace. My prayer is that you see, sense, and feel that, and that you're able to take something away and walk in greater levels of health. The goal not being to label something, not being to diagnose something, but to experience the full glory that you're created for. Grace, peace, and until next time we talk, shalom.